Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Proverbs chapter 6, and I would bid you to join me in Proverbs the 6th chapter this morning. Lots of Bible over the course of the next several minutes, be in the Old Testament, be in the New Testament. Do yourself a favor and let's all be looking in the Word of God together. That's going to begin in Proverbs chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me join in the welcome that's already been extended to you. It is great to see everybody this Lord's Day morning. Got a great number in attendance, lots of folks visiting with us. We really appreciate your presence today. I appreciate your participation today. That's been a great encouragement to me. I hope that you're able to say the same as we worship our Creator on this first day of the week. Lots to say this morning, and I want to just get right to it. In Proverbs chapter 6... Here the proverb writer gives this list of the things that the Lord hates. We're told in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Notice specifically in verse 17, amongst that list, are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Two weeks ago, you may not know this, a lot of the news outlets did not really report on this, but two weeks ago, 125 women in South Korea, they stood outside the Boshengak Pavilion and collectively they all ingested Mifigine, which is a drug that is typically used to induce natural abortions. That stunt, if you want to call it that, was done out of protest to South Korea's abortion laws, anti-abortion laws, where abortion has actually been illegal since 1953, and these activists were seeking to protest and to have that law overturned and repealed to make abortion legal. Uh, Meanwhile, maybe some news that you did catch here in the United States this past week, the Senate Judiciary Committee began their hearings over the appointment of a new Supreme Court Justice. And a substantial portion of the questioning that took place last week for uh, the nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, surrounded his position on Roe versus Wade. Senators wanted to know, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? That landmark Supreme Court decision from 1973 that legalized abortion here in the United States. Now, those two events are simply the latest headlines in the ongoing national and even global debate about the hotly debated issue of abortion. It seems that this is just an ongoing controversy, not just here, but worldwide. Now, if thinking about the geographical span of the abortion debate, if that doesn't show you just how far-reaching this issue is, then maybe this will. According to recent statistics, I came across this the other day, more than 80 million Americans have been involved in an abortion-related decision. And that would certainly include not just the women involved in those abortions, but that would include their husbands or their boyfriends or maybe a parent. 80 million people in our country that have discussed and dealt with this issue in a very personal and direct way. And maybe what's even more alarming is that of the total number of abortion patients each year, 18% of that number, that's nearly one out of every five abortion patients, 18% of those would refer to themselves as born-again Christians. You see what we're talking about here? 
We're not just talking about an issue that affects a certain segment of society out there. No, 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 no. We're talking about a very widespread issue that even affects people who are sitting in church buildings just like this one this very morning. Now, I could keep standing up here and just keep regaling you with all kinds of alarming statistics that would demonstrate to you just how pervasive this issue is in our world. But I really don't want to do that this morning. You can go home this afternoon and you can fire up your Google machine and you can find that information and you can read that until your eyeballs bleed. I don't want to do that today. I should also tell you as well that I have no desire this morning to turn this sermon into a graphic expose of what abortion is. I have sat through those presentations before and they are uncomfortable. And I really don't think that that would be appropriate for an audience like we have gathered here on this Lord's Day morning. When we talk about abortion, I'm simply defining it as the deliberate termination of a human pregnancy. That's really about as graphic as I'm going to be. Kiddos, if you need more info about abortion, I'm going to leave that to your parents. They need to explain that to you when they see fit. Furthermore, I need to also say that this sermon this morning is not about political parties or political ideologies. Even though in our country that seems to be the way that this discussion is always framed, that it's a big political issue. You need to know this morning this lesson has absolutely nothing to do with politics. I do not believe that it is the role of this church, nor do I believe it is the role of me as a gospel preacher to advocate or endorse any particular political party or politician. In fact, I will tell you this morning that I am personally incapable of doing that because I have never had, nor will I ever have, any affiliation with any of them. I find all of them to be terribly lacking. My goal this morning, and I hope what your goal is this morning, is to talk about abortion from the biblical standpoint. Simply, what does the Bible say? What should my convictions and my attitude and my response be based on the Word of God? That's what I'm interested in. And I'm interested in that, and I hope that you're interested in that, because as a Christian, the only verdict that matters on anything is what does God say about it? We want our worldview to be shaped not by popular culture, not by passing fads, not by political movements. We don't even want our worldview to be shaped by our own emotions or our own think-sos. We want our worldview to be shaped by God's inspired Word. And so whether I'm facing this abortion issue in a very personal and direct way in my life, Or maybe I'm just addressing this abortion issue in conversation as I talk with my neighbors and co-workers and friends about this subject. Whatever it is, I want to be biblically informed in my perspective. And that is why this morning, I'm simply going to appeal to the Scriptures. I want to develop five key ideas that Christians need to be ready to affirm about this seemingly perpetual hot-button issue. Now, I began in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. That's that passage that says that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. I believe that that passage would be inclusive of abortion. I believe that abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. 
And the reason that I arrive at that conclusion is because of truth number one, and that is that the Bible teaches that human life is sacred. That life matters to God. I believe that's evident all the way from the very beginning of the Bible. Would you look in Genesis chapter 9 with me, please? In Genesis chapter 9, you'll remember after God had saved Noah and his family from the flood, God then makes this covenant with man. And part of that covenant is God's expression of just how much He values human life and how much we should too. And so He says in Genesis 9 and in verse 6, He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. Do you see there? That God has placed a high premium on human life, punishing the guilty in order to protect the innocent. And God does that. God ordains that to be so because that is rooted all the way back in the creation account when God created humankind in His own image. Those passages tell us that God values life. And as a result, we also must value life. Now, of course... Whenever you start having this conversation with folks, specifically if you're talking with someone who is pro-abortion, it's not going to take very long before they're going to ask you the question, well, well, when does life begin? Does life begin in the womb? Or does life begin at birth? And that usually is going to be followed by lots and lots of medical euphemisms that get thrown out into this conversation. You'll hear all kinds of terms like pregnancy tissue. Or it's the product of conception. Or maybe everybody's favorite one, it's just a fetus. Which is really interesting to me because the word fetus comes from a Latin word that means young one. But all kinds of verbal and mental gymnastics are done to try and keep from acknowledging that what has been conceived has life. That what has been conceived has personhood. No, 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 no. That's not a person. That's just a blob of cells. That is, I noticed this one last week. I learned this one for the first time. That is foreign uterine matter. Well, you know what? You can fire off as much of that sterile medical jargon as you desire. Because as a Bible believer, I am content to simply say what the Bible says. And the Bible says that that is a child. I can show you that from the Bible. If you're still here in Genesis, jump over to chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 25, let's just run a little bit of Bible here. In Genesis chapter 25, we're told here about Isaac and Rebekah and how they greatly want to be parents. And so in Genesis 25, the Lord grants that desire. Notice the term that the Lord uses to describe Rebekah's pregnancy. In Genesis chapter 25, I'm looking here in verse 21... Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah his wife conceived. Verse 22 now. The children struggled together within her. Did you notice the term that's used there? The term that's used is the term children. Rebekah is pregnant, pregnant with twins. And the Bible doesn't refer to that as, as a fetus or as a blob of cells, or as tissue. No, the Bible says those are children. And I especially appreciate what verse 22 says about how those children are doing stuff inside. Apparently they're having WrestleMania right there inside her belly. 
In Exodus, please, let's add Exodus 21 to this discussion. In Exodus chapter 21, God gives some discussion and some legislation here about what the Israelites were to do in the event of what we might term as an accidental abortion. Look at the terms that are used here. In Exodus 21, this is verse 22. The Lord says that when men strive together, here's two fellows, they're fighting, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. That is, she gives birth prematurely, but there is no harm. Then the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In other words, if your negligence or if your bad behavior, if it harms this woman, and furthermore, if it harms this unborn child, causes this unborn child to die, then the penalty for that is life for life. Notice that God says that that unborn child has life. We can add to that list what Job says in Job chapter 3 and in verse 16. As Job is he's kind of just bemoaning his existence and the terrible fate that has befallen him. And he wonders why, why did he even have to be born? And Job wonders if maybe he would have just been better off if he had just been an infant who had never actually seen the light of day. Been in his mother's womb and just never even come out. Look at the term the Bible uses there. Infant in the womb. The Bible describes that there is a person inside there. How about in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1? This is a great place to go to talk about this. In Luke chapter 1, we read here about Mary and about her cousin Elizabeth, both of whom were pregnant at the same time. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Look at, first of all, look at what the angel of the Lord comes and says about Elizabeth's pregnancy. In Luke chapter 1, I'm reading here in verse 36, the angel says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. A son is inside of Elizabeth. In fact, drop on down to verse 41. In verse 41, notice the turn that the Holy Spirit employs here. In verse 41, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, the baby leaped in her womb. There's definitely some evidence of life there. And notice once again, the term that's used is, it's a baby, it's a person. In fact, I'd even call your attention to verse number 43. Notice what's said about Mary. Even though she hasn't given birth yet, Jesus is still kind of being formed in the womb. Look in verse 43. Verse 43 says, why is this granted to me? That the mother, the mother of my Lord should come to me. You see, whenever we're being biblical in how we approach the issue of abortion, then guess what? We don't have to use all kinds of technical terminology about zygotes and embryos and fetuses. No, 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 no. Because the Word of God is unashamed to just call that what it is. It's a baby. It is a child. There is a person in that womb, and that person possesses life. Now, if we had more time, we could add to this what's said in Psalm 139. In fact, I think maybe this passage was even discussed in the adult Bible class this morning. 
Where David describes there how God just masterfully formed and knitted and wove him together in his mother's womb. Or we could talk about what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. God says, Jeremiah, I knew you. I had great plans for you before your mother ever even gave birth to you. In other words, God is at work in the womb. And we need to be ready to affirm that. We need to be ready to affirm that life does begin in the womb. And furthermore, God expects that life to be treasured and to be protected and to be valued. And why? Because we are all made in His image. You see, I'm pro-life not because of a political position. I am pro-life because God is pro-life. And if God is opposed to the shedding of innocent blood, as we read earlier in Proverbs chapter 6, and honestly think about it, who amongst us in our society is more innocent than the unborn? Then I too must be opposed to what the Lord hates. The Bible emphatically teaches that life is sacred. And that, I believe, must be the starting point for us as we confront this issue of abortion. Secondly, though, and I'm going to say something right here that you might be surprised and you might not would have expected me to say in a sermon like this, but I think it does need to be affirmed that the Bible teaches that God sanctions choice. That's right. The Lord sanctions choice. The Bible teaches from the very beginning that God gives people the freedom to choose. From the very beginning of time, you read there in the account in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve. And how did He create them? Did He create them as mindless robots? Did He create them to be these puppets where He just pulls the strings all of the time? No. God created them as creatures of choice. He gave humankind free will. And that, of course, that freedom of choice... That seems to be a very prized privilege amongst the pro-abortion crowd because the rally cry that we often hear is what? The rally cry is, we are pro-choice. We want the freedom to choose whether or not we're going to keep this child. We want the freedom to choose whether or not we're going to be a mother or not. I read an article by a writer for the New York Times who really seemed to encapsulate what I think it means to be pro-choice in 21st century America, what most people mean by that when they talk about that. In this column, she said, she said, we need to just say that women have sex and they have abortions and they are at peace with that decision and then they move on with their lives. We need to say that that is their right and moreover that it is good that everyone have that right. The whole society benefits when motherhood is voluntary. And that really does seem to be what it all boils down to for most folks. And that is simply just having the choice of whether you want to be a mother or not. Let me tell you the problem with that. The problem with that is, is that is not the only choice. Biblically speaking, God has given people a host of choices. It's not simply the choice of whether you want to be a mother or whether you don't. God gives us all kinds of choices. 
For example, did you know that God gives you the power to choose to keep sex in marriage? That's Hebrews 13 verse 4. You can choose to do that. That instead of committing fornication and then maybe getting pregnant, having an unwanted pregnancy, and thinking that somehow the best way to deal with that is to just terminate that pregnancy, you know what you can do? You can choose to wait until you're married and then you can enjoy the sexual relationship where God honors it. And God says that it is good and it is right. You can choose to do that. You can also choose to fear God and to keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. You know, abortion, we sometimes talk about abortion like it is just the problem. It is the scourge of our society. Listen, folks. Abortion is not the problem. Abortion is merely a symptom of a greater problem. And what is that greater problem? That greater problem is that people do not reverence and obey the Lord. But by God's grace, by God's grace and mercy, you can choose to do that. Or what about this? You know, we hear so much in our society today about, you know what, this is, this is my body. And I can choose to do with my body what I want to do with it. And you know what? That's right. That's exactly right. Which is why we ought to be glad and praise God that God gives us the choice to glorify Him in our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That in everything that we do, not just on this issue, but in everything, we can choose to bring honor and glory to the One who has made this temple to be the place where His Spirit resides. And since we're talking about all this pro-choice business, it is also worth pointing out that we can choose to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. God also gives us that option. In Psalm chapter 82, please. In Psalm chapter 82, in decrying the wicked judges of that day, God says through the psalmist, this is a psalm of Asaph, I believe, God says that what the righteous need to do about all the wickedness going on around them is that the righteous need to defend the weak and the fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted and to the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, and to deliver them out of the hands of the wicked. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. Those are choices that God says we ought to be making. That we ought to be serious in our care and our concern for the weakest, most helpless members of our society. But I'm going to tell you, at the end of the day, God lets us choose. And unfortunately, statistics show that most people in our world are making bad choices. said a second ago, talking about keeping sex in marriage, Instead of committing fornication and end up getting pregnant from that and deciding that the only way out of that is to have an abortion, would you know that 85% of all abortions in America are the result of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy? Lots of people making bad choices and then compounding those bad choices with even more bad choices. Which is why it is incumbent upon us, as God's people, that we're going to be the ones we're going to speak up. And we're going to let people know that God, by His goodness and by His grace, He offers people a better choice. And let people know that sin is never the right answer. Which leads directly into this third truth this morning. Because not only do we need to affirm that abortion is sinful, but the Bible would even take that a step further. 
The Bible shows us that it is sinful to approve of something that God says is sinful. You know, I do not doubt that companies like like Planned Parenthood, you've heard so much about Planned Parenthood in recent years, I, I do not doubt for one second that they do provide some very valuable services to women and to families. And I don't even think that any of us here would be opposed to the idea of providing people with access to good women's health services and to make those things available to everyone, to people of, of every socioeconomic background. I think all of us would say, yeah, that's, that's a good thing. That's a needed thing. But I must also tell you that when an organization aborts 149 babies for every one adoption referral... And when that same organization is also responsible for more than 300,000 dead babies each year, I don't know about you, but I cannot support that organization. I cannot throw my lot in with them. And I must tell you that I am growing increasingly concerned and distressed by people who would call themselves Christians who say things like, oh, well, Well, I would never have an abortion. That's just not something that I could ever do. But I would support someone who does. I would respect their decision. I would maybe even advocate. Maybe I would go on my social media accounts. And I would share stories and links that would show support for groups like Planned Parenthood. You know what the Bible says? The Bible has something to say about that. Look in Romans chapter 1, please. In Romans chapter 1, we are told here that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against people who commit various sinful activities. And Romans 1 spells some of those things out for us. In Romans chapter 1, read with me beginning in verse 28, that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know, at least a couple of those designations there describe what's going on when an abortion takes place. You realize that? The word murder is used there. The term heartless is also used. I like the old King James rendering. Without natural affection. You abort your child, you are without natural affection, the Bible says. But keep reading, look in verse 32. Verse 32 says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you realize that that is the conclusion to one of the most damning passages in all of Scripture? And what Paul says here is he says that to applaud or to encourage people in a practice that God defines as abominable and deplorable and deserving of death, to do that... That is to bring condemnation upon oneself. And so practically speaking for us, what that means is, is that means that I need to be very, very careful about the organizations 
that I show my support for. I need to be very, very careful when I do go to the voting booth and I decide who I'm going to cast my vote for. And that means as well that anything that I say or I do, I need to be careful that I'm not putting my stamp of approval on something that God has deemed as sinful. I need to think about that. You need to think about that. You see, at this point, what's happening now is we're now starting to talk about some things in this abortion discussion that's not just about them out there. Now we're starting to hit closer to home for us. And that includes this fourth truth. And that is, we need to be ready to say from the Bible that the Bible teaches that vengeance belongs to the Lord. On January the 29th, 2010, Scott Roeder was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of Dr. George Tiller. Maybe you remember that. It was a pretty big news story in 2010. Dr. Tiller was a nationally recognized doctor who performed late-term abortions. Scott Roeder shot Dr. Tiller point-blank in the head while he was, of all places, he was attending a church service on a Sunday morning. Now, some people, when they heard of Mr. Roeder's actions, they described it as being, it was justifiable homicide. Good for him. He did a good thing. Other people on the other end of the spectrum said it was just a blatant act of terrorism. You know what the Bible would describe that as? The Bible would describe the actions of Scott Roeder simply as sin. In Romans chapter 12, please. In Romans chapter 12, Paul speaks to the grievous error that Scott Roeder made and others like him make, when he says in verse 19, in Romans chapter 12 and in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you ought to feed him. If he's thirsty, you ought to give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm making this point because I think that far too often, we forget this. You know, we become so angry at the taking of innocent life. And you know what? It ought to anger us. When we hear statistics about how many people uh, are, are terminating their children, when we see those videos that circulated a couple years ago, the undercover videos that were going on in Planned Parenthood about how they were harvesting babies' body parts and those sort of things, we ought to hear that stuff, and that ought to make us angry. And we also become so frustrated because abortion is, at least as of right now, it is legal in this land. And it bothers us. Why is that so? And as a result, what we feel is we feel that there's just no other recourse for us but to just demonize. We're just going to demonize anyone and everyone who would participate in that heinous sin. And so what we're going to do is we're going to shout at them. And we're going to call them murderers and baby killers. And we're going to hate them. And we're going to wish ill upon them. What are we doing? What are we doing? Shall we do evil that good may come? Absolutely not. Paul says what you need to do with all that anger... And all that pent-up frustration, what you need to do is you need to get it, you need to ball it all up, you need to turn it over to the Lord. You need to give it to Him, because in His time and in His way, the Lord will execute vengeance. In the meantime, what you and I need to be doing is we need to just be the salt of the earth. We need to keep being the light of the world. 
We need to do, as Paul says in this passage in Romans 12, we need to just keep doing enough good toward those people who would disagree with us. Do enough good that maybe, maybe, maybe we might be able to influence them somewhere along the way to think a little bit differently about what they're doing and to think seriously about God's way. You know, I make this point fully recognizing that none of us in this room, I hope none of us in this room, are going to go out and murder an abortion doctor. I don't think any of us in this room, we're going to get us a bomb and we're going to set it up in an abortion clinic and we're going to blow the place up. I don't think any of us are going to do that. But you know what? It is still so easy to allow hatred and vitriol to build up within our hearts toward those who would slaughter innocent children and those who would participate in that ordeal, which is why we need to always remember, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All of that then brings me to this fifth truth this morning. That I am afraid that all too often as Christians, we, and when I say we, I mean I, just completely ignore in this whole abortion discussion. It is the part that I am afraid we have just been woefully falling short in. And that is that the Bible teaches that we are to be a compassionate people. Our Lord came to this earth to be compassionate. He came to save us. But you know what? He didn't just come to save us. He also came to save those elements of our society that were the very deepest in the darkest parts of sin. Jesus Himself made that point clear in Luke the 5th chapter. In Luke chapter 5, you'll remember as the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling as they often did about how Jesus was associating with tax collectors. What's He doing eating and hanging around with sinners for? Jesus answers that. In Luke 5, beginning in verse 31... Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's who Jesus came for. Out of Jesus' own mouth, that's who He came for. He came for people who had messed up their lives. He came for people who messed up their lives royally. That's the people that He came to help. Which is why it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus wants His disciples, His followers, the people who wear His name, He wants us to develop that same kind of servant heart. In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 12, the Bible says there, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We are to build deeply within ourselves and then we are to exercise that same quality of compassion that our Master extended toward those who, you know what, yeah, they made some really bad choices in their life. And yeah, those people, they're living with the consequences of their choices every single day. We need to extend compassion to those folks. In fact, when we are talking about people who have had an abortion... Do you realize that many times we are talking about the very people who were convinced that that was their only option? It wasn't their only option 
But that's what they were convinced of. Because of their background, because of what was going on in their family, because of where they stood on the socioeconomic ladder, they were so far down. Their circumstances were so bleak that an abortion to them seemed like the only way out. For example, did you know that 75% of women who have had an abortion, they say that they did that because they simply could not afford to raise that child? 50% of women who have had an abortion said the reason they did that was because they were afraid of being a single parent. They were afraid that that was going to create struggles and problems with their boyfriend or with their husband, and as a result, they'd be left all alone. Are you aware as well that women who have had an abortion, they are five times more likely to try to deal with that and cope with that in the aftermath by abusing illegal substances? Get addicted to drugs, as that seems like the only coping mechanism that is possible. Did you know as well that 60% of women who have an abortion, they experience emotional distress, and 30% of that number in a severe kind of way? And Did you know as well that women who have an abortion, they are three times more likely to commit suicide? Now, we see statistics like that, and the question is, how do you feel about that? You know, too bad for them. Is that how we feel about that? How do we respond to that? I'm certainly not trying to say that any of those things are justifiable reasons to have an abortion. Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that God's people are called to have hearts of compassion. And many times, the people who have made an absolute wreck of their lives, they are the ones who need our compassion the very most. And what we need to remember is that you and I, yes, we're Christians, and that means we have lots of blessings coming our way, but guess what? We do not have a monopoly on the love and grace and mercy of Christ. The love and grace and mercy of Christ, that is for everyone. It is available to sinners of every kind and every stripe. And yes, that would include even people who have had an abortion. That they can be forgiven of their sins just like you and I can be forgiven of our sins. And we need to be ready to affirm that truth along with all of these other truths as we seek to be biblical and as we seek to be Christ-like and how we respond about this issue. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that if we affirm those five things to people on a regular basis, that somehow we're going to just convert everybody. Everybody's going to stop aborting and there'll never be that problem again in our world. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. And we're going to be the people who are going to say what the Bible says. You know, I said earlier that God is God is pro-life. And when I say that God is pro-life, I think that that ought to take on some different shades of meaning in our ears as people of faith. Because not only is God pro-life in the physical sense, that is that He values human life, but God is also pro-life in a spiritual sense. You understand that? God does not wish or desire that anyone should perish. He doesn't want anyone to die spiritually. What God wants is that through His Son, people would have newness of life and that ultimately people will have eternal life. God is pro-life. 
And because of His great compassion toward us, you now have the opportunity to receive His forgiveness, to receive His cleansing, and to receive salvation through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are extending the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ right now to anyone who has never become a Christian, to anyone who maybe is a Christian but you're living outside of the will of the Lord. It is an invitation for you to come back to Him. To put Him on in baptism if you have never done so. Or to repent and return back to the Father. You know, I find it very... It is very much a paradox that in order to create and make the opportunity for us to have life, God allowed His Son to die. And to die in the most excruciating and horrible fashion that you can imagine. But that is the greatness of God's love. And right now you have the opportunity to grab a hold of that, to be washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and to be a Christian, and to then be adopted into the family of God. And you can know what it means for God to be your Father and you to be His child. Can we help you to do that? Why don't you make your way down front and do it right now while we stand and while we sing.